Hello and welcome to 21st Century Vitalism, a podcast asking the question, what does it take to be fully alive in the 21st century? I'm your host, Brett Kane. I'm a licensed massage therapist and mindfulness meditation teacher, and it's my belief that in order to explore the question of cultivating aliveness, we really need to examine the many systems that we're participating in, both internally through our health and lifestyle choices and externally through the way that we interact with our society, our interpersonal relationships, and commerce. I think that in order to cultivate vitality in this day and age, we really need to be open-hearted and curious about the ways that we tend to the gardens of our minds and the forest of our communities. We have a lot of unique stressors that have never been present, and I think seeing the ways that they affect our being, both in how we relate to others and ourselves, is important to create clarity and a sense of spaciousness, which ultimately allows vitality to flow throughout the being. Uh, So with that said, I think one of the key conversations being had right now in our society is on the nature of identity. Um, you know, as we start to shed light on the multitudes of ways that people are identifying with their being, I think it's important to look at the psychological systems in place that are sponsoring our leanings towards specific identities. Um, in Jungian psychology, there's kind of the idea of archetypes, which are essentially psychological blueprints that we adorn ourselves with in order to navigate certain experiences in our life overall. These blueprints are as ancient as the language-generating mechanisms in our brain and have been handed down over thousands of years of evolution. We've all interacted with them and are constantly perceiving the world through these filters and lens. They help us maintain a sense of forward momentum, lean into transformation, and ultimately self-actualize. If you've ever been called to be a warrior or fallen in love or taken on a creative endeavor or been inspired to hold public office even, archetypes have likely been a part of the way you've made your decisions in pursuing that. Um, They're so deep-rooted that they've actually been the major characters in all of the stories that we've grown up and have been telling since the dawn of time. It's how we understand the world through story. They are the characters that keep popping up. If you want to look at the elder who was the, the wise counsel that would help the hero at the right pivotal moment, give them the one, the Mr. Miyagi's, the Obi-Wan Ben Kenobi's of, you know, which have always been with us. It's essentially the same character. It's an archetype. Uh, you know, when we look at like the hero's journey, which is something that Joseph Campbell really outlined and which you can chart from all the way from the Odyssey to Star Wars, that hero, the one that goes through, they, there's very chartable um, key moments in the story that are all mappable and we're constantly living out in our lives, whether we're conscious of it or not. So that's what archetypes are. They're blueprints. They're they're us, you know, it's the accumulation of all human experience, you know, we all share these same story beats, and then we subconsciously implant it into the next generation through the stories we tell. So in order to really help me flesh this idea out, I wanted to invite the one and only Phoenix Wright. I didn't mean to make that rhyme, but it did. Um, So Phoenix is a master Reiki practitioner, performer, event producer, and newly trained life story life coach. During the initial COVID lockdowns of 2020, all the yesteryear, uh, Phoenix shifted their primary aim away from being a performer to start the Higher Ground Healing Arts Practice, which really aims to help individuals overcome creative and spiritual blockages so that they can reach their full potential. Um, In order to do this, Phoenix uses Reiki, sound healing, breath work, and offers a really unique one-on-one Story of You life program. Uh, So we do spend some time during this conversation exploring how all these practices have interplay and really what that kind of looks like, but we ultimately spend a lot of time on archetypes and how 
our being uses it to orient in such a sometimes chaotic world. Um, we really talk about specifically about the the masculine archetypes that are currently at play. Uh, we talk about the the warrior, the magician, the king, and the lover, and how these forces are kind of using us as puppets to seek out their own uh, self-actualization. And when you really learn what archetypes are at play within your own mind and your own heart and your own spirit, you're really able to kind of imbibe that energy and flow with it rather than against it. And it can really give you a lot of creative license on how to navigate your life. Um, we also talk about personality and creatively creating new characters. That was a lot of alliteration, creatively creating new characters. Um, but essentially on how to play with identity and how to navigate this in a way that is very lighthearted and can actually create spaces of um, inspiration and help other people come more into full focus on who they want to be. Um, this is a really fun conversation for me. Uh, this touches up on a lot of things that I have really inspired me, you know, so I'm really glad that uh, my good friend Phoenix was able to join me. Uh, I hope to have them on again because they are just such a, a wellspring of inspiration. That's me dropping a key. I like to fumble with things as I'm talking. Um, so yeah, uh, without further ado, I, I don't want to take up too much time because this is a meaty conversation. There's a lot to be grokked here. Uh, but if you do wish to support the show, head on over to Apple Podcasts. Give us a nice review. You can subscribe over on YouTube. Um, that's probably the easiest way to stay up to date on all the content. I do post uh, uh, Instagram and Facebook, um, but there's pesky algorithms that kind of keep my content away from your eyes. So unless you, if you really want to stay up to date, uh, and you have been staying up to date, YouTube, I'm, I'm telling you, they, they care about content creators a little bit more. They don't make, they don't put me behind a paywall, uh, and it helps me connect with you. So, um, as I said at the start, I am a mindfulness meditation teacher. That's something I can do virtually. So if you're interested in deepening your practice and cultivating clarity and stability and strength within your mind, reach out to me over at 21stCenturyVitalism at gmail.com. If you're in the Grand Rapids area, like I said, I am a massage therapist and I do have two spaces I operate from. So also reach out through there if you want to start... Uh, embodying a little bit differently and we can actually maybe even combine these modalities and uh, you can help me develop my embodiment coaching program that's going to be coming out once I learn a few new uh, things. So a lot of fun stuff in the works, y'all. I am really just starting to get into the full workload. Like, what does it take to make the best podcast possible? Constantly learning, constantly expanding. If you're jumping on right now, check out the old episodes. There's a lot of really dope people. I, um, Definitely have a lot of fun conversations in the books already that are still very relevant to today. Um, a lot of useful stuff. Uh, yeah, so I got a good catalog going. Um, be on the lookout for uh, maybe a new website coming up, new Patreon, some stuff in the works, definitely probably by summer. So yeah, uh, you know, we're moving along. So yeah, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I say it often. Uh, without further ado, please open your hearts, do some stretches, drink some tea, do what you gotta do to get comfy, and welcome Phoenix Wright.
Phoenix. Hello and a welcome to 21st Century Vitalism. How are you today? Excellent, Brett. Doing real well. How are you? I'm doing really well as well. Uh, I woke up, I looked at my schedule, I'm like, oh, I got a conversation with one of my good friends. So, you know, it always sets the day up uh, positively. So, um, yeah. So we did just talk a little bit about just kind of where you're at in life. But the way that I really wanted to start this is kind of creating a context because this past year I've watched you go from performer, fire, trumpet, slinging, uh, provocateur <laughs> to someone who's offering like healing spaces. And you, you have quite a bit of tools under your disposal. I'm just kind of curious what this transformation looked like from someone who's usually on the stage to someone who's kind of behind closed doors with clients and helping people find their own way. What were some of the conditions that kind of led you to this? Hmm. Well, I want to start this conversation by saying it wasn't, wasn't an abrupt shift. Um, I've been practicing and teaching Reiki for the last eight years. Mm. And even throughout my performance career, Reiki has been a, a pivotal uh, tool in my toolbox. It's, I've always created through a, a spiritual lens. And so I've been struggling and working hard at trying to unite those two worlds for, for years. And uh, you see some of that in my uh, work with the Closet Fort Kingdom, an attempt to have a bringing a message and some kind of uh, spiritual center to the performance world. But when performance and festivals and the nonstop kind of day-to-day -day event production ended, uh, I really I had to take a, a close look at what the world really needed and, and what it was calling for in this time. And it was only natural to kind of fall back on my, uh, my healing offerings. And this year has exploded into uh, many different facets, really uh, expanding the different modalities that I want to offer through my healing practice, Higher Ground Healing Arts, and having a focus, having something that drives you, having a purpose uh, when everything is falling away, really, I mean, saved my life personally in many ways this year. And really helped me ease my way through this quote-unquote identity crisis. I became a uh, breath uh, breath instructor, uh, breathwork certified. <laughs> sorry, a certified breathwork instructor. A I've taken er facilitation leadership courses. Uh, I'm a certified life story life coach now, and just got into doing uh, men's work, men's retreats. So I've been really diving into uh, different areas in life that I feel, especially in our community, that uh, are lacking you know, direction and, and guidance. And yeah, it's, it's, it's been good to kind of find, you know, something to keep me busy and something I, I, I think the world is really calling for right now. Yeah, I like that kind of idea of like responding you know, do you feel like before, like pre-pandemic, that your art and your performance was a response as well? Like, was there something that you saw in the world that was lacking in that arena that you were trying to show up and kind of provide? Or was it just kind of like a natural, that's just where you were at? It took me a while to pursue performance in the way that I was uh, pre-pandemic. 
you know, I went to school for music education. I wanted to be a music teacher. And going to school for music absolutely made me hate it. They beat the love of music <laughs> out of me. I ended up quitting uh, my music education degree one credit shy. Oh, wow. And I didn't touch my trumpet for like four years as oh. I was trying to figure out what my passion was. And it was during that time that I picked up learning Reiki and kind of preparing food and really discovering acts of service. Um, and it wasn't until I went to Burning Man that I was kind of re-inspired to pick the trumpet back up and kind of use it as a tool for expression. And, and that's how it, you know, that's how it started for me was just showing up at festivals and all of these magical places that really fulfill all of my core values. I didn't know that's what I was doing at the time. I just thought I was going to magical environments and becoming a character. Uh, that became the, the origins for my discovery of uh, my archetypal work and bringing to life different characters that kind of represent different ways of being. Mm. So, you know, performance became a way for me to express and a way for me to have something to do in these magical environments. And, you know, Reiki was a huge part of that. Energy work has always been infused in everything I do. And so that laid the foundation for me kind of developing some kind of message, uh, trying to share this liberation and freedom that I had found through music and self-expression, creativity, and fusing it with a spiritual path. So it's always been a way, my, my entire creative process has been a way for me to um, open paths for other people and to kind of connect ways of being that you may not have imagined before. Wow. And whether it's through uh, performing specifically or um, doing healing work and helping people realize their own innate magical abilities, you know, all of my work is kind of settled around that same realm of untapping untold possibilities. Yeah. Yeah, something I've always really enjoyed about interacting with you and seeing you in your element in the the performance space is that I really feel like you a big part of the things that you cultivate is a sense of like you, you're inspiring people to interact as well and like to also draw out the the spontaneous creativity in them like seeing you embody these characters that you have in went through some of these spaces with, you know, it has it, always made me want to like get involved, you know, like that's the natural response is like, dang, people are out there doing really cool things. Like I want to do cool things. And I think like even that is kind of like a healing art in that you're like opening that door for other people to give themselves a permission to become somebody that it, they weren't like, wasn't get, given to them, you know? Yeah. People wait for permission. And you don't need permission to play. I love that. You, you absolutely great. don't. And many people lose that relationship with their inner child or we don't have healthy outlet, or outlets for it as we take our roles in this crazy modernized society. So creating opportunities for people to not only you know think, man, I want to do that, but that are encouraged to do that. And we destigmatize. Uh, what that's about, you know, that was the core essence of a lot of my work with Nonsense Night, uh, which, you know, a blank, for anyone that's unfamiliar, it was a blank canvas for uh, communal expression art from artists, vendors, musicians, uh, people that were just interested in like social experiments. 
to all band together. It was like a one-night festival. And to create environments that are um, completely different than the ordinary world. You create, mm. you know, this threshold that individuals have to cross, which could be this veil of weirdness, and enter the extraordinary, the unknown, where untold possibilities can happen and you can discover facets of yourself that we don't allow ourselves to in our normal everyday profane existence, our ordinary world. Yeah. Yeah. What I, I liked about nonsense night and for the long time listeners, I have had Zach on who is kind of the, one of the other progenitors of that space is that it really requires you to also get involved as well. And like, that was what made that so special is it wasn't like this top down, like we've created this thing that you can plug in and consume, you know, it gave people an opportunity to create, you know, and I think that that is kind of a the next logical step from a lot of typical festival culture um, and just consumption culture in general, like consumerism, like the antithesis of consumerism is creating, you know, so any space that really encourages you to dive deep. And for you, you know, like character has been um, a big part of that. So I'm just kind of curious on how did you find out that you like wanted to play with the idea of identity and what that like meant to you? Because that really, from my perspective, seems like the forefront of what you're constantly navigating where do identities originate from (laughs) um i don't know at what point in my life i started to realize that there's all these different characters different facets and ways of being different voices that wanted to have a say in this experience that i call my life but the more i listened to them and their wants and their needs and allowed them to kind of play and to take their role in the different arenas of my life, I found that my life just started to work a little easier. You know, I, in the beginning, I affectionately referred to myself as a, like a social chameleon. I could go in and fit in high school. I could go in and fit with uh, the more preppy kids, or I could, you know, I played sports, I was in band, I was in theater, I was in choir. And every one of these avenues and arenas required a different, different bit of my personality. And that was really the, the origin. Um, and then there was a big one lying under the surface, which <laughs> became gender identity. I grew up in also West Michigan, which you're very familiar with, but in a, a little bit more rural of an area, <laughs> Hastings, Michigan, mm. which was not the most accepting. And a big part of my like early identity was suppressing my more feminine aspects in a world that didn't have an outlet where I was. And as I grew older, uh, got into college and discovered even more arenas and facets uh, of society, my spirit wanted to play and figure out what these people are like and what's life for these individuals. And I've never been so like attached with with any one way of being. I think that when I discovered spirituality, it really opened up a lot of doors for me. I started to view these identities as residual uh, pieces of potential past lives or maybe uh, elements of all the characters from every story I've read or watched. And the, again, the more I trusted them and breathed them to life, they 
took me down the paths that I needed to be on. They became like cheat codes, mm-hmm. ways of being. And yeah. as we got into furthering my uh, study of meditation, Buddhism, and Reiki, I learned to really uh, disidentify with a lot of the archetypes, uh, personalities that had taken over in my life and began to view them like hats. And Mm. for those people that know me know that I have a lot of hats. Um, And just like you choose what outfit to wear for the day, you can slip into these archetypes to really help you at any time in your life to get through any sort of situation and really knowing when to call on which energy um, has been one of my absolute focuses. I think the most important skill any individual can uh, grow is improvisation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. It, it really does open you up to like the greater flow of life a little bit more. And the more that you like kind of invest into that space, the more it shows up, like you realize like, oh, everything's improv. Then you start to see all the ways that like we actually do have a lot of like autopilot interactions, you know, like once you really get into the space of improv, then, you know, you go to the bank and you have the interaction with the teller and you're like, I like none of that was like authentically me. It was just something that was like programmed into me from how I watched my parents interact with the teller. And, you know, it, it kind of breaks up some of the adhesion of um, our perception of the self as a thing. Um, and what I, what the thing that I'm feeling is I, I'm, I just started this book called, um, uh, the science of enlightenment, how meditation works. It's by an okay. author, Shinzen Young. And it, within the introduction, he was saying, um, cause he's trying to like bridge the Eastern and Western ideas of mysticism. He says to take the mist out of mysticism. And his thing was that like something to really understand is that, um, we, we typically think of the self as like a thing, but really, and like, it's not to say that the self doesn't exist. There is a level of uh, coherence and kind of momentum, but really it's a bunch of smaller personalities that aren't nouns, but they're verbs that come out in certain situations. So the more that you're able to kind of divide your identification from this like grander sense of like, I am this into like what's coming out in the moment, um, and seeing it as like motion, you know, not like a static thing, you know. So when I hear you talk about the characters that you're you're imbibing and that you're really breathing life into, you know, it, it really, really makes me feel like you're kind of dissolving that that boundary structure of that that solid sense of who you thought you were, and you're like really tapping into like a greater flow of the moment, you know. So I think that this is a, a really powerful perspective that a lot of people in the West don't have a lot of introduction to yeah well that's our our addiction to form and substance Mm -hmm. and past uh we need all of your accolades all of the things that you've done in order to define an individual and if you could be anything just by studying it getting to know the like resonant frequencies that it embodies its energy uh how how can we identify and put people in their own little boxes? We want to, you know, really pinpoint who we think people are. This person is a man. They are white. They're cisgender. They are Republican. They are Democrat. We want to have you in your little identifier so that we know how to treat you. Mm-hmm. And if we began breaking out of these little boxes and 
you know, existing as who we need to be in any given moment? How do we define who we are? How do we find our axis mundi, our like center for uh, our lives? And how do we make sense of things? And yeah, um, my study of the archetypes has really opened that door, cracked it open for me. I think that I've always referred to myself as the entire universe uh, pretending to be a human for a little while, existing mm -hmm. as a human. And if you are a believer of, of anything like that, um, why would you limit yourself? Yeah, yeah. Feel the, the full range of all the different ways to be a human, you know? And as, as you're saying this, I'm thinking of like, like you brought up the fact that like, like in West Michigan, as a man, that meant something. Like to be a Absolutely. man meant, and like it, gender is a psychology. It's a it's a set of lens and filters, and it completely shapes every single interaction. And for me, what I find really interesting is to really investigate all the different layers of filters that we apply on ourselves to limit. And I, I think what's really important when we do this work is to be gentle and compassionate with ourselves. A lot of people, when they start to see how limited they've been operating, they want to tear everything down. They want to just take an ax to the, the foundations without any sort of like skillful means. And I, I think like it kind of comes from the place of like, these structures in our brains have evolved to keep us safe and to protect us. But right now we're being called to step beyond them. And like evolution is now something that we have to take on consciously. So all of these filters, they've been developed to kind of orient us in a way that's like, our, our brain is always trying to allocate less resources to things that it doesn't find important so that it can focus on like survival and like kind of advancing yourself in the hierarchy. But now we're in a space where it's like, we we're, we've kind of gotten the safety thing down where I mean we're out of the food chain at this point so like what is the next mode of evolution if not to be on the food chain it's to be more open it's be, to be more in the flow and open to the the cosmic demiurge if you will and navigating filters navigating personality and identity is I for me like one of the most exciting forefronts so you know in we were originally talking about like an itinerary of what we wanted to cover. I'm like, yes, this is the thing. Like this is the, this is really the forefront, you know? Yeah. And I think you had a key factor there with like not taking an ax and, and chopping things down, but do you remember that beyond all of these different hats and ways of being, there is the self that is choosing and you know, there is, and th that self is made of your core values, your core beliefs, um, the bits about you that you can't really escape your likes and, you know, and that may waver as you find different ways of being and expressing like my more femme identity, which I affectionately refer to as uh, Phoebe love. Mm. When I'm embodying this energy, I find myself being drawn to different foods, different clothes, mm. different styles of music. Um, we could go on a whole tangent about how I, I think that, different the sounds we listen to help program us and um what archetypes become available to us if we talk about and, and now we're getting into like stereotypes versus archetypes but if i talk about country music uh what kind of image do you get of who listens to country music or if i talk about like 1930s jazz and the voice may have <laughs> given you a little bit of context yeah. there but um you have an image that is kind of associated with um, 
people that subscribe to different types of music. And, mm -hmm. and so it's important when we're talking about archetypes to remember that these are like ingrained models and patterns of, of everything, whether we're bringing awareness to them um, or not. These are universal ideas that appear in every culture um, and they cross uh, every boundary that we have constructed. Um, archetypes are expansive kind of, uh, hold on a second, let me get this point. I'm going to think about this first before I launch into this. The main difference between archetypes and stereotypes is archetypes live in this like in the in the cosmos swirling with potential uh stereotypes live in like a, a tight a small box with a tight lid mm. um so imagine you pass someone on the street when you start to stereotype them you might reduce them and make assumptions limit judge assess or dis, uh like decide something about them we misunderstand their complexity we think that like you know their story um more devastatingly, we deem ourselves as like separate from them in that moment with no need to like listen or need to learn. And that's usually done unconsciously, like out of fear. Uh, with stereotypes comes this like pain of contraction. So when you're following mm -hmm. a pattern and you think that, you know, it's making you feel small, I'm acting like this type of way or embodying this identity. That's how you can tell the difference between stereotyping and archetypes. But if however we relate to that person, on the street archetypally we become curious about them uh, we see like coexisting potentials within them we see their struggle and we also see their shine we realize that they're what they are is like unknowable and multi-layered we begin to relate reveal and heal we connect uh, we can see ourselves in them and we see them in us all this usually happens within a split second without their knowing and with archetypes comes the freedom of expansion. Everything mm -hmm. kind of belongs. And uh, as paraphrase from the Kim Cran's Archetypes Guidebook, which I've been mm -hmm. studying extensively, um, and it points towards you know using the imagination, what could be, rather than limiting something to what we think it is. Archetypes are universal they transcend anything that we can think about them. Because uh, if I talk about what a king is, let's talk about the king energy, which was a big focus for uh, the men's retreat that me and Joe Marlowe just led, empowerment. Uh, archetypes are a huge facet for uh, healing the kind of uh, unhealthy male identity that we have in this culture. I think that finding healthy symbols can really help us bridge uh, and establish a healthy masculine expression for men that are lacking rites of passage and initiation. Yeah, so I, I guess to really like elaborate and kind of get like a concise, clear vision of what we mean when we're talking about archetypes, my interpretation, and I haven't done any study, so I'm really, I'm looking for clarification. I'm not saying this is it. Um, is that like an archetype is kind of like a, a universal psychological spiritual blueprint that has been like passed down generation to generation. And it's something that's kind of like an energy that like 
we embody and like subconsciously and they're the these very chartable kind of energetic experiences that we go through kind of like similar like the joseph campbell idea of like the the hero's myth so to speak is, is that kind of similar um yeah you hit a lot of my key words here uh definition of archetype is it's a statement a pattern of behavior or a prototype it's the first form it points towards the origin mm-hmm. um essentially they're universal inborn models of people, behaviors, um, personalities, or even ideas like the mountain that has characteristics or personalities that we seek to embody. Um, And so all these play a role in influencing human behavior. Carl Jung believed that they were like narrative patterns that exist within uh, the human psyche. He believed that like these characters were present in all members of our species and throughout history which is why we can see traces of them in art, uh, literature, dreams, and uh, cultures around the world. You'll see the same archetypes uh, showing up in cultures that had no idea, no, like no connection uh, to one another. Archetypes uh, help inspire the core of your personality, and they're influenced by both your inborn nature and your life experiences. Hmm. So would you say, so we were talking about like filters earlier and how like being a man is a filter or your sexual orientation is a filter, all these filters. Is an archetype another one of those filters or is this something like a level deeper? Is this kind of like what determines the filters that you end up kind of aligning through or? So there's literally an infinite amount of these primordial blueprints. I mean, man is one, father is one. There's like subgenres, and they get divided. Everything we think we know about them cannot even begin to actually define what they are or what they truly represent because they themselves, they're infinite and they only reflect our current level of understanding about them. Mm. <clears throat> kind of reminds me of the tarot a little bit. What'd you say? It kind of reminds me of the tarot a little bit. Well, the tarot is based on the hero's journey, which any of the major arcana cards represent certain archetypes. Okay, along the path, you know, ways of <laughs> yeah. being. Uh, you can embody a hero or a warrior. You can embody the king or the queen, the emperor or the empress, uh, the magician, you know, the hermit, uh, or, or the magician card, uh, the lover. You know, those are archetypes. The joker, the fool. It, the journey of the tarot starts with uh, the archetype of the fool, the individual that knows nothing and is heading off into this crazy spiral cycle of life. And your personal experience with each of these characters is a valid and vital expression of that particular archetype. How you embody the fool would be, you know, far different than how I embody it. And your understanding of any of these ways uh, can greatly serve you or hinder you if it's applied incorrectly. So it's important to know that every archetype that, that you are aware of is, is present within you at some level even the ones you have a distaste for. If there is uh, something like a, a dictator, devil. Yeah. A devil, yeah. yeah. You got some aspect or element of that kind of bo- yeah. boiling around because you have a thought of, of what that is. And if you have resistance to it, then you're more prone to slip sometimes yeah. and embody aspects of that. Yeah. yeah, the more you push something away, the less understanding you have of it. You know, so you're more likely to actually slowly slide into embodying it because you don't understand it and you fear it. Um, do you think that uh, 
I, w- I find this to be like an interesting idea is that like Donald Trump was, I guess, an archetype that we all have within us and people's response to him in the way that like we spent the last four years demonizing and I mean, fairly justly so I'm not advocating for anything but but do you, do you think he played an archetypical role in the conversation of who we are as a society? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think we would be here and going through as much of our shadow as we have been if we didn't have a shadow aspect of uh, our leader, the king, on stage, you know, reflecting the negative qualities and bubbling them, bringing them to sur- the surface. We've had people that identified with those different shadowy aspects and celebrated um, these like <laughs> um, terrible ways of being. And if you don't look at something, if you don't shine a light on it, you can't bring it to the surface. You can't heal it. Mm-hmm. And I think that honestly, it may have been really terrible to endure at times. And a lot of people are very adversely affected by the aura of our society the last four years. But honestly, it's probably for our, our, our good, you know, it's, yeah, yeah. we really are bringing an awareness and a mindfulness in different ways of being. And we are evolving as a society, I think much faster than we would have been had we pretended that everything was okay and delayed addressing these things. Yeah. I think it was really interesting because I mean, yeah, we are always perceiving through the lens or the idea of archetypes, whether or not we know it. And the fact that so many people saw his aura and felt what he was putting out into the world and identified as him, that's where like the most ardent supporters come from is because they're like, he thinks like me. He talks like me. I understand the way he navigates the world. The fact that it like really shined light on a way that like a lot of people are operating through, I think really kind of like lowered our, shortened our deadline to be able to, like now we're operating on a much shorter time frame on like, yo, we got to like evolve. We got to like take care of things. We have to understand ourselves so we can mitigate harm and to like really shine light and to like transform this energy into something positive and sustainable. You know, I think, I also think, I think it was important for the conversation and I wish there were easier ways to have it. And I really strongly feel for the people who are more affected. I mean, we're all affected, but some people more so and, I wish there was another way, but, you know, that's the path that we chose, you know. Absolutely. And you see the rise and fall of great nations usually coincides with having uh, a weak leader. Mm-hmm. And I just brought up the king archetype earlier, and I'm, I'm going to clarify what I was uh, getting at. Donald Trump's a perfect example. Um He's not our king. We don't live in a monarchy, but he is our leader, which is our president, which was our, is a modern uh, evolution of the king archetype. In order to embody an archetype in its healthiest expression, there are certain qualifications that have to be met. Um, For the king specifically, there's two important things, uh, two primary attributes that all healthy kings alive in their fullness possess, and that is ordering which means a king must first be aware of his kingdom, like where it begins and where it ends. Uh, for us, it's the uh, United States, pretty easy boundary. In the uh, outside East, of really. that influence lies Sorry. chaos and uncertainty. Um, 
and then once the king has outlined his domain, he must establish a system of right ordering or uh, manifestation of widely defined and understood ordering principles. And the king must live by them. In feudal societies, the king was the clearest channel for God or source that the people had. The king had to be, you know, the bridge between heaven and earth. Um, and if a king doesn't live by those rules, then, you know, then you start to get into dictator territory. We start to, like, not support our king. But the second, and this, the second uh, primary attribute, which is something that we haven't felt in this country in a while, is uh, a king must provide fertility and blessing. In patriarchal cultures, like we still live in today, although I think those tables are turning, uh, we tend to look at the man in charge to bring abundance to our day-to-day -day lives. For this reason, the archetypal king becomes linked to the fertility of the land and his people. If the king himself is healthy and prosperous, so too will his kingdom thrive. And we can see this in, you know, so many different uh, elements from our media. Say, like, one of my favorite ones I like to use is uh, when Simba returns to Pride Rock and mm -hmm. in The Lion King and all of the plants return. And during Scar's reign, it was barren. Um, or in Lord of the Rings, when uh, the white tree of Minas Tirith begins blossoming when Aragorn returns. Mm -hmm. So the land becomes abundant. People, you know, thrive. People have a lot of babies. Um, and the king must also provide blessing, which is a spiritual and psychological responsibility. He has to fill the people with king energy. Mm. If the king doesn't do this, then he gets ruled by his shadow, which brings to life a whole lot of things that were hidden in uh, being, like, resisted. And so him not being our perfect leader, you know, I think was a vital aspect for bringing to life, like what we're going to tolerate as a society moving forward. Wow. It's interesting because as you're talking about, and I know that you'll probably agree, uh, you're, you're describing the, the healthy aspects and the negative aspects of the king. Like I'm also reminded that like we each are kings. Um, is the queen a different archetype? I want to say each are kings and queens, but I don't know if... That's the same thing in the archetypical sense, but either way within us is that, that kingly aspect that we have to kind of reconcile. And I think when you don't interact with that in your own self, then you are much more likely to outsource that work to other people and wait on other people to do the thing that you should be doing within yourself. Is that kind of a accurate readout? Oh, absolutely. And it depends on, you know, which which shadow that the king is uh, embodying. Um, in King, Warrior, Magician, Lover, a book by Robert Moore and Douglas Gillette, um, which is what I've been studying for a lot of, uh, at least these four healthy uh, primary archetypes of uh, masculinity, what men seek to embody. They talk about how every archetype has a shadow side and we embody all aspects of this. You know, you are a king. I am a king. But within us also is the potential for shadow when we are not living up to our fullest. And uh, Robert Moore and Douglas Gillette uh, argue that, you know, we have an active shadow and a passive shadow. And so the active shadow of, say, the king is the tyrant. 
um, an individual that envies new life and he perceives uh, any kind of weakness as a threat to his kingship, he acts violently because um, he puts on this threatening front and truly he's hiding behind a mask of weakness, which is the uh, passive shadow, the weakling. This is a man who is not centered in himself, one that lacks like inner structure. All beauty, all strength, like all life is an assault on this individual's passive insecurity. This makes him kind of irrational, paranoid, and abusive towards others. It's also important to note for a king that a shadow king identifies himself with the king energy. He's his own priority, the man who needs to be seen and admired. The person that takes the crown and says, I am the king, is usually, you know, a shadow king. Mm. So uh, out of the, these, uh, there's the four basic archetypes of masculinity. Uh, you said the king, the warrior, the magician, and the lover. Mm -hmm. um, is this only for, I mean, everybody has these, right? It's not necessarily like as a man, right? Like, because I mean, even like women identifying feminine folks, um, they have masculine impulses and energies swirling throughout their makeup, you know? So is this something that like, women could also be benefiting from understanding? Oh, absolutely. My current focus is in working with, uh, with men through this men's work. But uh, yes, I mean, we have, you have yin energy as well as you have yang energy. And you can learn things from archetypes uh, of opposite gender expressions. Um, but there's a, a duality with all archetypes. So if I'm talking about the king, the queen is, you know, an easy uh, uh, pair there. The mother and the father are both two aspects of the singular archetype, the parent. Mm. Just as, say, the crone and the shaman, um, the creator and the destroyer. You know, a lot of archetypes work together, even if they... Uh, are expressed through what we would say is a masculine or a, a feminine, you know, uh, space. There are archetypes that are, that are genderless too. Like I talked about the mountain or the ocean, you know, those have attributes or qualities that you can embody as well. If I talk about fire, you know, usually we're trying to inv evoke some kind of passion and fire doesn't have a gender. So, mm with archetypes your perspective is is uh, valid and a an important part of us understanding these infinite things so if any word doesn't resonate with this particular image you can just throw it out and replace one that does and mm -hmm. then you are embodying that archetype because they are universal infinite uh like programs wow so when we're working with archetypes, is there like a practice that kind of goes along? So like you're spending the time, you're researching, you're um, getting like the descriptions of each of the archetypes, but does it kind of end there? Does just shining light on the description kind of you enable you to use it as a tool? Or is there an integration practice where you can actually take the descriptions and you have specific practices to cultivate them or to avoid certain things or... Um, like how, how does this look on like the practical scale, like the day to day? When I work with my clients in my new story of you program, I have them sit through 
all of the books, the movies, the stories that inspire them. And step one is about identifying the archetypes that are already at play within your life. So this could be fantasy stories. It could be famous people from history that you admire. The first step is to identify the archetypes that you are already embodying and then learning about them. So say you were trying to become a father. It's important to understand the you know positive aspects of a father and then the negative aspects as well, or a mother. You know, the nature of a parental relationship uh, means that you're going to be there and you're going to want to nurture your child, but you also need to learn the potential shadow, which is that you can't be there all the time. There will be an absence, and that's an important space of being a parent where you're allowing your child to go out and express. And so there are like intrinsic qualities of, of archetypes that are a lot more tangible, you know, than when I talk about like kings, warriors, magicians, which aren't really present in our society. But there are aspects of these that we can seek to embody in order to pursue different avenues in life and to be more successful. Mm. Um, the next step after, yeah, like I said, identifying your archetypes was to kind of learn um, everything you can about them. And if you are a creative type, you know, you could create characters or create stories where you're actually bringing exaggerations of these identities to life. But um, yeah, you can really relate them back to your own life and seek to embody different aspects of them um, for um, like discipline, for some of your self-practice, for discovering maybe new things about yourself just following the archetypes that inspire you that you might not have had an outlet to before that could help you, you know, embody some, some new way of being that you didn't have a point of access for. Mm. Wow. Yeah. This work has always really fascinated me. Um, like the linguistic focus on it to where you're playing with the structures of mind and having, narration you know a lot of the stuff that i focus on is kind of a little bit more ephemeral more like spatial quality i'm always trying to like cultivate spaciousness within my clients and within myself and i i think for a lot of people they they're not ready to really take on that full spaciousness and a lot of people's minds are very active and needing to be chewing on things and i think that this is like a natural step for like the western mind specifically to be able to plug into a deeper sense of um, like unfolding, you know, like it actually is, it just feels a lot more natural to me, you know, as you're saying it to be able to have this because we're already doing, it, you know, um, and something that it, it just came up to me as you were speaking. So like individuals have archetypes, but do societies? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, you can look at how we, vil how we view our, say, our law enforcement in this country versus how other countries may. You know, we have an, some idea of, uh, look at the, like, uh, our movement against our police force here and how they have kind of failed, you know, a lot of our society here. And that might not be how somebody in... Uh, China feels they may actually feel more oppressed at times or Canada you know they 
view their police force entirely differently. So they, as a society, have different perspective. They have different feelings about the individuals that embody that role. And that builds into, you know, cultural opinion, how you interact with that, uh, that, that symbol. It changes everything. You know, these are the building blocks of how we view our world. And when you put up borderlines, uh, the ideas that get contained within there are vastly different from the ones next to it. And of course, this varies based on, you know, how modernized cultures are. After a while, a lot of our more westernized cultures end up adopting very similar views of archetypes. But if you look at a lot of tribal societies, the archetypes that they have, you know, kind of created and viewed are so uh, different than what we have here. They're wider. They see a lot more possibilities. They're not as obsessed with the hero's, hero's journey. Excuse me. They have uh, really evolved archetypes and in in a way that we are not really privy to in, in the Western world. We're obsessed with certain ways of being and reselling the same stories over and over and over. How many times have you like remade all of we're remaking all of our movies right now rather than coming up with a lot of like new ideas because one it's safe two uh we're taking all of these programs and or archetypes programs energies and kind of reselling them and rehashing them rather than coming up with with new ones or playing them like on loop mm -hmm. um oh that's another huge point is that archetypes in branding uh yeah, they play such a huge role in the symbols and the images that we are kind of digesting. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the ones that we subscribe to are all set up for supporting our kind of capitalistic machine. Yeah. So what, what do you think is like the general archetype of capitalism and like what the American dream is? Like, even as I say, the American dream, pretty much everybody will have an image. Usually it's like retirement in Florida, beautiful wife or husband, nice paying job. Like what, do you, what, what, what's the archetype that's at play that's causing people to all plug into this shared narrative? So I'm immediately seeing like some sense of success, some, you know, the stereotypical picket fence, car in the driveway and a dog, a f nuclear family, you know, those are all archetypes. And I, I think that you're seeing that being burst right now. Yeah. Um, we have been, so you spoke about like societal views on archetypes. As we uphold that image, that's what people are going to kind of hold as the standard and they're going to seek that. And we're seeing that evolve and change right now as it's being revealed to be very unrealistic, this American dream that you're going to have this dream partner and this dream life and, and what that looks like from somebody from one person is not, you know, somebody else's wish. Mm. Um, yeah, I don't, if I put like a name to that, um, 
the super angsty rebellious part of me wanted to say like sheep because i think like sheep is an archetype or like <laughs> like hurting but like is. i i have to acknowledge that that's just like the old angsty kind of because i do see the value in it and i don't think people are sheeping when they do that but i just had to give that some air <laughs> Yeah, I mean that's that's definitely I think when you look at the past, if you'd be like a nineteen fifties, you know, like street, and every every house is the same, and everyone has the same car, and that is very much like sheep or lemmings. We're all headed yeah. in the same direction, but that would be I think the side effect of not choosing your archetypes, mm-hmm. allowing yourself to be programmed and to follow along on some somebody else's narrative, and. I think that to bring it back full circle, ultimately, that's the the biggest asset for doing this kind of work and playing with your identity using these different you know mythological stories and um, ways of being to influence who you are. It helps bring flavor and uh, color to your life. And yeah, I love that. your interpretation is always going to be valid of these as long as you stop basing it on what other people think of you. It's, mm-hmm. allow, it's about allowing that energy to kind of flow in the direction it wants to go and, you know, change uh, how you live, <laughs> how you interact with individuals and ultimately, you know, stop caring what they think. Stop trying to build your identity based on uh, those societal norms because I think that they hold you back and they they hold us back as a society. The more people we get breaking free, uh, the more possibilities we invite into this reality. Yeah. Yeah, I think a big part of it is, I mean, like the narratives that we've consumed throughout our lives kind of give us the possibility or the spaciousness to explore different ways of being. Which is interesting because, like, when I'm thinking about it, like, I've actually had some, like, good narratives. There's good narratives in the mainstream culture that promote uniqueness, individuality, spontaneity. But I just still feel like, I mean, I think it really does kind of come down, like, advertising is potentially one of the biggest sources of narrative because it's painting, this is how life looks. And like, this is what you should have. This is how you should feel. Like we take in movies, but we take in way more advertisements. Oh, yeah. Right? And it's important. One thing that I've realized is that it's important to bear in mind when you're buying a product, what archetypal idea you're purchasing. Mm-hmm. Um, this other book that I'm reading, uh, The Hero and the Outlaw. And oh, man, the authors are slipping my mind in this moment. But it's all about the use of archetypes and branding and advertising. And that's what we are buying when nike came out um nike is the god a greek goddess of victory you know what they were selling is victory and many people don't even know that they're like that's a company name no they're selling you nike the goddess of victory and the swoosh just do it uh another great example from that book is uh, ivory soap which is a soap company that's been around for almost 100 years now um, and supposedly it's the like purest soap, uh, 99.9% pure or whatever. And for mothers today, even today, that's the only soap they'll use for their babies mm. because it's the only thing pure enough for this pure spark that has just come into the world. And so they have been selling, it's just soap, but yeah. for a hundred years, they've been selling the idea of purity. Yeah. Ivory, like the ivory tower, you know? 
Yep, exactly. And this wow. is every single product that we have is, is, and it has some primordial energy or blueprint behind it. That's why we support different brands. That's why logo design is important. If they're using like an arrow or a shield, you know, like you're looking at what kind of energy they point to and really getting clear on what archetypes, you know, you're embodying and um, consuming ultimately is, is uh, you know, is, that's how far this rabbit hole goes. You start to see them everywhere. Right. The different actors and actresses that we subscribe to beyond the camera, beyond their characters, you know, they, they have archetypal energy that we want to embody. Uh, mm. Jack Nicholson was like the rebel, the rebellious kind of like maverick. And so was Madonna. And, you know, people would uh, follow these actresses that embody or actors that embody certain ways of being so that we can get to that. That's what we're reaching these ancient primordial ways of being to help us kind of bridge the gap between them. Yeah. And you can probably like trace back their inspiration even to like older celebrities that embodied that. Like these, these energies are like you said, like primordial in that like they've been handed down like a lineage, like each element has like a lineage of history that like ease the forward momentum of it. And it's just caught up into this whirlwind that we keep supporting by being attracted to it. And it's like the receptivity that we have is innate because it's part of our evolutionary. It's what's helped us evolve into the culture creating creatures that we are, you know? So it's like, we are, it's the puzzle, right? Like we have this open slot and like, that's what we plug in is these like, archetypical concepts to try and feel complete you know it's really fascinating work um so i'm wondering like what do you think from your perspective is the archetype that as we look at like the societal trends and just kind of as we're breaking away from the nuclear family uh the security kind of like getting your own slice of the pie what do you think is the archetype that we're going to see most forefront in order to break up that adhesion in order to start really taking our power back like what kind of energy do you personally put into that pursuit and what do you think the america as a whole what, what you're noticing is starting to come to the surface so I'm not sure about an exact specific champion archetype, but I think that the one thing that needs to happen is that we need to stop living behind these masks of illusion and uh, look at ourselves for who we really are. And many of us are Im stuck embodying the juvenile uh, aspects of these archetypes. We're trapped in adolescence because we lack a lot of the rites of passage into proper womanhood or manhood. And with, that's an important aspect, mm -hmm. aspect to embodying these archetypes in their healthiest, fullest expression. I think that any of the ones that we had mentioned, king, queen, warrior, magician, lover, would be great tools to help you, you know, fully embody yourself, your role in the society, and help us kind of cure a lot of the shadow that we are uh, we've been enduring and going through right now isolation and scarcity and uh, a lot of racism and and a lot of shadow and really bringing these archetypes into their healthiest, maturest expression and 
you know, it, it, some of these are, they're not, they're not good to, or they're not comfortable to, to feel like one of the archetypes that a lot of men are trapped into is this pursuit of say the hero, which for many of us, we would say that that's a, that's a beneficial archetype, like hero saves the day. But the hero is a, the, um, it's the juvenile growth, the juvenile state of the growth of the warrior. So mm. men that, or women that are trapped in the hero have not, you know, stepped into their full, their fullness of the, the warrior archetype. Uh, and heroes actions, unlike warriors are, they usually are like way overdone. They're dramatic for the sake of drama and heroes constantly have to seek to reassure themselves that they're like potent or as potent as they hope they are. But true warriors, you know, are disciplined and more solitary creatures. They live for something bigger than themselves. And I think that the warrior might be a good example of, of what you're kind of getting at there because um, a warrior at its core is a stance towards life that, you know, someone that rouses, energizes, and motivates it pushes us to activate the offensive and, and face the challenges that life puts in front of us. First and foremost, foremost, like asserts our right to be alive and fuels our willingness to defend ourselves. We can really benefit from mm -hmm. taking action and uh, seizing some of the passivity that we have. A warrior sets out by either their will or those they've aligned with to change the world. And in most mm. stories, this is done with physical means. But I mean, this can be, you know, your everyday scientists, your journalists, your podcasters, your activists and politicians, just people that assert their will to change their reality. But a true warrior is, you know, there's someone that um, is always alert, always awake, never sleeping through life. He knows how to focus or, or she knows how to focus her mind and body to achieve these results. And this requires like continuous awareness and attention and something that a lot of us uh, in this society are, you know, struggling with. We're so stuck in our phones and in our computers and, and all these screens that that alertness and aliveness is, is not very present. And that could lead a warrior to becoming uh, either a sadist or a masochist, which are the mm. shadow aspects of warriors. Whoa! I didn't realize that those are the shadows. It's I, I'm glad that we're we're syncing up because that was honestly the archetype that I was going to bring to the table was that I think we are lacking a strong sense of warriorship, and I think that it is something inherent in our biology. Like that does feel like the fulfillment of like kind of being actualized is that you're like kind of on the battlefield, whether you're going to do it right or you're going to do it wrong. You are there. You're showing up, and I think right now and we're looking out at the world and seeing all of the suffering like what we need are not like brute force warriors but warriors of compassion who are willing to like you said stay present and stay open but also be vulnerable because i think vulnerability yeah. is another aspect of warriorship that doesn't get talked about a lot is i mean you're on the battlefield you know you are risking life and limb you are putting it all on the line and for i think right now the unique challenge we have is to to risk life and limb is to be open and to feel the, the, the shadow that other people aren't willing to feel, you know? Um, but I think, and I, 
English, my first language. Um, <laughs> I think another one of the, the things that I'm seeing greatly lacking is the elder. We are in a grave loss of eldership. And, you know, our society, the way that we treat the elderly, we, we call them the elderly, but we don't treat them as elderly. We put them in retirement homes. We don't visit them. They're, they're like auxiliary. They're not, it's not sexy anymore. You can't really sell as much to them, you know. Um, they sell things in private and, you know, like insurance and shit like that. But, you know, we don't have like the wise elder who's able to like offer counsel. We have Bernie Sanders. You know, he, <laughs> I, I think he really does kind of fit that, but like. And that's why he's so popular is because we don't have, <laughs> we don't have enough, you know? Absolutely. Oh, I'm going to speak to both of those uh, perspectives you just had. First of all, we are on the same page with the warrior. Um, you know, we need to redefine this. And, you know, warriors are often seen as destroyers. And many things in our world do need to be cast down so that something new and more virtuous can appear. But it's important to bear in mind when you're in this process that what is good and evil in one age may not be the same as the next. Our definitions of good and evil evolve over time. And true warriors are aware of this obsession with duality. That type of thinking is often used to justify our actions in pursuit of like some idealized uh, belief of salvation. But in reality, that finality is, is never really achieved. Um, so that mentality can lead to like an obsession with winning and losing and being better than those around us and going to war. So those warriors often, they do bring their, their war home with them. And so it's important to look beyond that eternal struggle and welcome those warriors, welcome those soldiers home, allow them mm -hmm. to kind of put down their arms and kind of not carry that battle with them on the streets. Um, it's the warrior. So it's, it's a great thing to be a warrior. And a healthy warrior is like training, but not always in combat. You know, that's, but that is an important aspect to remember of, of that identity. If you're going to take on, I'm a warrior. Well, that means that you're fighting somebody by your nature. Like you have an enemy. And so that causes some element of pain. You have to take accountability and responsibility for, unless you're just fighting like for something. You have to be really clear on what you're fighting if you're a warrior. A lot of us, especially us spiritual warriors or people out here on the, on the front lines of consciousness, we want to claim that title. And but then, with that, we we're, we want peace, but that we identify ourselves with a fight. And so it's this: now you're putting yourself at war with yourself. The real challenge of the warrior today is to assert brand new narratives, just like you said, into the fold of humanity, uh, to imagine like new versions of this warrior myth beyond like slaying dragons and and overcoming often self-created enemies but to forge new stories centered around like building bridges and overcoming the obstacles that stand in the way of our unity on the elder um <laughs> yeah that's also been a huge focus i've been surrounding myself with as many elders uh you know in, in tribal societies you would have the elder in a hut at the edge of the village the hermit, and you would have to seek them out and go to them if you wanted to learn their ways. And we don't, we don't even have that. Like you said, we, we put them in homes and we've been cut off from them. And it's, that's so true. And we wonder why we don't have, and I think that's connected to the lack of rites of passage and initiation into maturity. We yeah. don't have this progression yeah. of adolescent, you gain the reins of society and then you get to teach that wisdom 
to the earlier generations. We're so focused on that middle generation that makes money. We Mm -hmm. have cut off our ability to really raise up the next generation ahead of us and to distill the lessons and the wisdom from those above us. Like we're all about the middle, the, the productivity. Even our school structures are like created to get people into that middle as soon as humanly possible. Like that's why you're not taught about like basic life skills when you're going through like K through 12 education, you're taught how to get a job, (laughs) you know, and the entire thing is just kind of like molding you to be a, a consumer and, um, someone who makes a profit you know look at our how we view public education and it's so hard this shows how it's hard to move an idea or a thought form it wasn't until industrialization that we started to make schools look like factories they're run by Mm -hmm. bells they go to lunch they have periods they're like they they look just like a factory they're built the same size and shape and so we started to associate them with you know yeah, like, like you've said, pushing them towards the factories and productivity. But if we could rewrite the primordial blueprint in our, in our psyches of how we view like school and education, education. Mm-hmm. yeah, then um, we can move away from, from that kind of capitalistic productivity focus. But so many people just accept that as the blanket way that things are because they're not questioning yeah. Um, you know, those archetypes. We're seeing a lot more of it. I I served as uh, a teacher's assistant at a Waldorf school for three semesters in Detroit. And Waldorf, Montessori, like they're, they're reformatting uh, education and really putting it in the hands of, of children, which is one of the most powerful moves. If you really want to yeah. learn new archetypes, listen to the kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. And I just thought like really one of the only initiation rites that we actually have is the graduation from high school, right? Like even after college, it's kind of like, yeah, okay, cool. You'll get your little ceremony thing. But when we look at ceremony, like, yeah, graduation from high school, which places all of the importance of growing up on that institution that is just springboarding you into the workforce, that's the only thing that we really have, right? Getting a car, getting your license at 16. It, all, of our, all of our rights of initiation are based on capitalism. Again, money is the new tribe in modernized mm. society. You don't yeah. have money, you're out of the tribe. So yeah. you, you turn 16, you get your license, you get a car, if your family can afford it. Yeah. That's a rite of passage into adulthood. Turn 18, you can buy cigarettes, you can vote in our political scheme. Uh, turn 21, you can drink. Uh, yeah. For, I mean, losing your virginity, some kind of like sexual conquest, uh, <laughs> rites of passage. It all has to do with your, it's like lower three chakra stuff. <laughs> yeah. How, yeah. Yeah. And not so much inheriting wisdom and becoming a part of society. It's like, how much money can you spend? What's your value? Uh, buying yeah. a car, buying a house, like the American dream. That's the, the, rites of passage and and we keep moving the goalposts back on that threshold so we wonder why we have so many people that are walking around with shadow versions of themselves hiding behind masks so that we don't find out who they really are whoa i love that you said like money is our tribe and if you don't have it then you're not in the tribe because that does speak to like the evolutionarily history which ties into all of this that it's like 
when you otherize somebody, then you cast them out of your compassion, which is exactly what we do to like the homeless population or just like people who are in like low income situations is like we, we other them. And then we have a filter that we apply to the people who, you know, that that's an archetype in itself, like the beggar, you know, and the way that we relate to that archetype typically in this society is with disdain. And, you know, like that's kind of like the, the thing that's always on like the the nip of our butts always like threatening us is like you could be one of those other ones you could be one of the beggars one of the misfortunate you know and it it really is the driving impetus that puts us on this path of capitalism and consumerism is to not be the other to not lose the good grace of the tribe you know yeah and that's that's a definition not necessarily it's Okay, so you have on one end, you have the American dream, something that you're supposed to be reaching towards, and then you have this, the beggar, which you're supposed to be reaching, like, pushing away from, resistance towards that, or from from becoming, you know, homeless. And, and that's kind of your your benchmark for how to exist in this society. Is You have to <laughs> figure it out somewhere in there. Go from this, this bad, this good. And yeah. if you fall too far down on this low end here then you're going to lose certain privileges in this society mm-hmm. um yeah. and, and we don't really teach you how to get here uh right. you know how to get to the the idealized end of the spectrum and it's uh, changed from generation you know uh, 30 40 years ago if you had a 40 hour a week job you could afford a house you could have you know, paid for your college yourself and not been in debt for years. And so it seems like society is being pushed every decade even further towards this, like, you're going to be out of the tribe. And we wonder why people are so anxious. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it it seems like the the spectrum, like the uh, being out of the tribe is just taking up more and more of that bar, you know? And it's like, there's just like a small narrow band of like, I'm in it. But, like, even once you're in it, I think a lot of people are realizing that, like, the bar has been way too short for way too long, and it doesn't incorporate what it takes to actually be a fully-fledged, like, content human being, you know? And I think that that's kind of, like, the breakdown of the narrative of why people aren't pursuing the American dream in our generation, because we we see that it's a crock of of shit, and, you know, (laughs) it doesn't incorporate all the elements that it takes to be happy, you know? So I just wonder, like, what... Uh, what is on the other side of that spectrum? What is past the American dream? Like, is that kind of where the magician comes in? Is that really what we should be aiming towards is to be someone who's controlling the symbols to creating the reality, their own reality or. So the most important aspect of, of embodying the magician. Yeah. I mean, taking, taking the forefront of creating, creating your reality. That's, that's huge. First, I want to make a, before I jump into the magician, I want to make a quick distinction of like freedom and like liberation because I don't want to vilify like uh, getting a great job and or like, right. you know, profiting through your, your passions. Um, but you could be totally free today. You can go to a park bench and just sit there for the next week or two weeks or go to a field and you're free. Nobody's going to do anything. You know, you, you're obligated to nobody. But you won't be able to maybe buy food or have shelter or travel and see your friends. You're free. And then there's like liberation where you have like, you know, worked hard and you you have what you need and 
you could buy the things that you desire or travel or, you know, have exactly what you want in life. So it's like a difference between freedom and liberation. Um, but on the topic of, of uh, magicians, one of the big reasons that people don't embody this in our day to day is that we have cut out sacred space in our society. So a lack of sacred space, and it's important to make a distinction between sacred space and profane space. So profane space is where like a majority of our society lives every day. And profane space has no like fixed point or center where humans can gain orientation from. Uh, that's, mm. uh, I mentioned earlier, an access mundi or a cosmic tree or a pillar that leads to the heavens. Um, that's, that's the experience of modernity, uh, people unable to locate a center. Uh, but sacred space is, uh, in sacred space, we tap into ways of being that we didn't allow ourselves to, you know, kind of perceive before. So we don't look at everything being a, um, a degradation of what it was in the past as we do in profane space like everything if you are in profane space for too long you develop uh, this uh, like pattern of viewing entropy and comparing everything to the past when you're in sacred space you are always looking at what things could be mm. so the absence of true magicians in our society also makes us vulnerable to individuals that do channel that archetype um, in a vulnerable way, uh, or shadow magicians. Um, and I don't like to focus too much on, you know, the shadow magicians at play in our society, but there are individuals that certainly are embodying wizard energy, whether or not in, um, our society sees magicians and wizards as real or not. There are individuals that are seeing it and are allowing themselves to tap into uh, those places and shadow magicians are not individuals that want to guide others but instead kind of direct them in ways that they can't see and they're not driven by like a desire to help but use their knowledge to often manipulate or belittle others to maintain their own status and superiority um, and so a lack of magicians in our society has really allowed uh, a lot of the more negative aspects to kind of thrive. And they've done that by like eliminating sacred space, filling it with profane, uh, kind of taking away our society's belief in magic, allowing us, which allows us to break free or, or liberate ourselves and um, transcend the limitations that we kind of get stuck in. You know, if we are constantly worried about being kicked out of the tribe, if we're constantly worried about what other people think and if we'll fit in, then we're going to spend all our time just trying to maintain those sim meters rather than building bridges towards new ways of being and uniting in our own unique weirdness. We'll spend all our time making sure we fit into that little tiny box and we're fulfilling all of the correct aspects and values and beliefs of 
what someone that embodies being a white male American Democrat is and anything that challenges that we try to push them out of that little box and that's mm-hmm. where society wants to keep a lot of their time you know really being stuck in these archaic identifiers and a lot of these more whimsical and, and fantastical ways of being like the magician for example can go really accelerate your your process and getting to the core of who you are in your identity uh, mm. and tapping into spaces that you may not have ever, you know, even allowed or allowed yourself to think about or, or, or even thought about in, in some, in some areas. Um, I could go on a lot more about like how to embody yeah. a magician. That's what wants yeah. to come up, but I'm going to stop. That's a, that's a, another wormhole. <laughs> right. That's its own episode. <laughs> yeah. Well, I do know that you have uh, time engagements, so um, I guess just start to end this off, I'm going to throw this out there, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but the energy of the lover is what it takes in order for us to even begin the process of warriorship to cultivate the magicianship that we need to actually transform. Would you say that the lover is the foundation? Spot on. That is absolutely nice. yes. spot on, because that's, that's what allows you to be receptive. It's what allows you to kind of tap into the sensual nature, uh, your, your sensual core, which is a, an open-eyed, like awestruck individual that's in love with all the ways of being and um, playing with all of the ingredients that life has in a, in a very loving way. But the core is that receptivity, absolutely allowing yourself to allow and um, to put down your kind of walls that keep you from experiencing uh, all of these different kind of uh, fantastical ways of being. Uh, the pursuit of uh, the lover, or many of these archetypes, it, is a, it signifies a desire to, like, to submit, to surrender oneself to the power of something bigger than you, something sacred and in our modern society submission tends to be perceived as as a very negative thing if you submit then you're weak Uh, but when it comes to like embodying these sacred spaces and these sacred archetypes uh, and receiving personal transformation through them it's a necessary element because if you cannot submit you cannot die Mm -hmm. and if you cannot die you cannot be reborn. Boom. Awesome. Yeah, I think uh, that's probably the best possible uh, end we could put on this episode. Phoenix, thank you so much. Uh, can you let people know where they can find you? You have your uh, one-on-one Story of You uh, mentorship program. You have like workshops coming up. Um, yeah, how can people stay in touch with your uh, platform? Yeah, definitely. So my healing practice is called Higher Ground Healing Arts. And through that, I offer... Uh, Reiki services. I also teach Reiki. I have a few Reiki classes coming up for music therapy services. And my new one-on-one coaching program, uh, The Story of You, which is based, uh, it's a life story, life coaching program based around elements of narrative therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, and neuro-linguistic programming, where we 
kind of like dive into your personal story, figure out what archetypes are at play within your life, get to your core values and your core beliefs, and then start changing and playing with some of the ideas that you kind of want to let behind and step into your new way of being. Um, and you can find me uh, at uh, Higher Ground Healing Arts on Facebook. I have a website in the works. And um, yeah, that's that's about it. I have a... Um, all of my performer pages are under the name Sheriff Phoenix. Uh, that's a separate archetype for a different time. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, Higher Ground Healing Arts. And uh, you can also keep an eye on uh, any upcoming men's retreats. We're also doing some couples retreats in the future through uh, empowerment. And that's with my co-facilitator, Joe Marlowe of Living Magnificent. Uh, you can follow the empowerment uh, journey on Facebook as well. That is uh, empowerment, a journey to the center of the new masculine. It's mm, a good name. Like rolls off the tongue. Wonderful. Awesome. Phoenix, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you. You're one of my favorites. So please be well. Well, thank you, Brett. Um, yeah, good luck with the rest of this podcast and keep up the amazing work. I've been following everything you've been doing. Your message is spot on. You're true blue and solid gold, my friend. Oh, thanks, bud. I'll talk to you soon. All right, my friends, that was the episode. Thank you so much for listening all the way till the end. I really do make this show for you. Uh, specifically Steven I know you're out there the show is 100% for you if you didn't uh, listen then I wouldn't be making it he knows who he is uh, yeah that was my friend Phoenix we talked about archetypes we talked about advertising archetypes that was the one that really fascinated me because I did not know that about Nike um, so hopefully you can take this information and uh, really start to examine the world in a different way you know like these are like functional units of full being you know it's really fascinating it's really fascinating so yeah thank you so much for listening if you're interested in supporting the show you can subscribe to us over an apple podcast or maybe follow us on instagram or like us on facebook you can also subscribe over at youtube and uh, stay as up to date as you can possibly stay uh good reviews on all those is um the lifeblood of the show right now that is the currency that i am trying to amass so that i can continue to get excellent guests such as phoenix and beyond um thank you again so much truly from the bottom of my heart i mean it if you made it this far you're the mvp most valued person it's steven uh all right well uh, with that said i love y'all have a great week